1: lots of things are better together hockey food golf how about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day but if you really want to take things to the next level drink some labat blue lights with your friends and live life to the power of we always enjoy responsibly beer labat usa buffalo new york hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news
2: This is the GM Shuffle. I think he's in checkmate. He's going to sign Harden back. He's going to bring the same team back. That's what happens to you when you have a bias towards one player. I could see him be by Christmas. If they come back and it's not working, I could see that. I mean, that's the only other asset they have. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and V-CIN. is Femi Abebefei.
1: Welcome to another edition of the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and Beeson. I'm your host, Femi Bebefe. As always, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer, Andre Paraiso, in for our buddy Elliot Bowman on the ones and twos here. Guy, Elliot's on vacation now, Michael, so he's... a uh... He's often running it, so I
2: mean, I mean, one thing about the, all the producers that work here at Visa, <laughs> they work their ass off, so they he do. deserves it. We'll let him have one. They do. You know, although you know, none of us get one, but it's
1: okay. He can have one. It's all good. <laughs> no, our guy Elliot is. Uh, he, I believe he's going back to a, to NapTown, Indianapolis. So uh, he's going to check in on Anthony Richardson, make sure that the the savior, the QB of the future, is all good and well, and and we'll see what happens later on with the Colts. But now this will be a fun podcast coming up a little bit later on. We're going to continue our literature and leadership series here. And this is gonna be a really fun one because we have Ed Smith, yep. who is the co-founder and director of the Institute of Sports Humanities, but he was also the chief selector of the England cricket team, the England cricket team that won the World Cup back in 2019. So I can't wait to talk with Ed.
2: Yeah, Ed's a fascinating man. I'm fortunate to have gotten to know him and spend time on Zoom calls with him. And you know his book, Making Decisions, Bringing the Human Back into Decision-Making, is not a knock on analytics. It's really about how to combine the two and mm-hmm. how to work from different sectors. And I think Ed was, is a really curious man in the sense that he started out Wanting to figure out if there was an algorithm that you could use for selection. And then as he got through it, he realized there's has to be kind of a combination of the two. So it'll be fun to talk to him. At, at, at really, you know, which is sets up perfectly because we you and I haven't had a chance on the shuffle to talk about the wonderful draft coverage, which we witnessed the other night on Thursday night uh, <laughs> by the worldwide leader and all. And then, of course, we're going to start free agency, which we're going to have a very special guest. Uh, We have a deep undercover NBA executive who's going to come on if we mute his voice uh, once free agency starts. So I'm really looking forward to that. I've guaranteed him his uh, he will be in the witness protection. No one will know where he is. He'll be in Utah. He'll be somewhere in Utah selling relics by the road, eating tomatoes with no taste, as Tony Soprano (laughs) once told Carmela. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that'll that be very very fun that we'll be doing here on the gm shuffle podcast So look out for that nba free agency michael it starts on friday so like we just had the draft yeah. free agency's gonna start i mean i'm seeing all the daytime talk shows are talking about damian lillard they're talking about draymond green Kyrie irving we all want to know where these guys are going to end up playing but of course you had to mention the coverage of the draft i just i had just forgotten about it and then you bring it back up now into my next stream of consciousness in that whole debacle that we saw the last thursday night there but The draft from an entertainment standpoint was lacking there, but from a team building standpoint, uh, what did you kind of take away there from the NBA draft the other night?
2: Well, you know, for me, it's hard to really understand the team building because we don't get a talk about basketball. I mean, I get that ESPN is really not in the sports business, that they're in the entertainment business. And the only thing they really want to promote is the games and all their other shows don't really talk about the games in the way they should be talked about as now they're going through layoffs Uh I felt like, look, it's a huge day for these kids. They work their ass off to get drafted. They should be some form of celebration. So, to me, a draft coverage should have the celebration element, but it also should have the analytical, the what happened, what's going to happen, what's moving. Because the people that are tuning into the draft really want to know that, right? The audience that listens to the draft coverage is Betters fans, all those. it's not look let's put this on because you know uh, Taylor Swift's going to sing songs okay <laughs> that, that's not the case so and you're not providing that 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 whole thing was put out. I mean that poor girl that was doing the interviews on the desk, I mean, she, you know, it looked like the Merv Griffin set with Kramer and Newman. And I mean, I thought that girl, that girl probably has to have a torn hamstring by the end of the night. She could, you know, she's trying to interview people, engage them. And you got three people on a couch and you're going back and forth. And we don't know whose hat they're really wearing. They're changed. They can't do that. Like at some point, the job of, of the information provider is to make it easier for the fans. And yet the NBA and the collective and the players, they they make it harder. So it's a very challenging enterprise.
1: It is a very challenging enterprise. Like, and if you're just watching the draft and you see a player get selected, it's like, Oh, we just drafted this guy, and then you find out five minutes later, we actually traded their rights to this other team, so we don't have this player. Like, I'm looking at it right now. Like Bilal Koulibaly was drafted seventh overall by the Pacers, and then the Wizards drafted Jarese Walker at number eight, but then they swapped the picks. <laughs> so it's like, so right, Koulibaly don't even gonna... know what they
2: paid to swap the picks. Like, you and I both know, like, in the NFL, what's it cost to swap picks, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is that fee? Like, well, I don't even know what the fee was for that. I never heard it. No. And, and look, Woj, the, to me, Woj is a valuable guy, but and, and he should have more airtime than what he does, and so should Bobby Marks, but there should be somebody there on that desk. And, and, and I thought Jay Billis and, and J.J. Riddick looked like they were on board the Titanic and saw the iceberg coming. I mean, like they, they're like, what are we doing on this show, right? And so, you know, they should have somebody on the desk that has had experience drafting, building a team, mm-hmm making trades like all those things like this is what the day is about and so for me it was very frustrating but they don't change their coverage I mean it's the same thing when they do the NFL draft there's not one person including Lewis Riddick who's never been a general manager in the league Lewis has never made a pick he's been involved he's been in the room thank God he's there but -hmm. there's no one else I mean Tannenbaum's at least been a general manager but he's out you know he's sitting down in Boca they don't even let him come in on for the show like, and they and, and what's fascinating to me, Femi, is their two top college analysts, Jay Billis in basketball and Kirk Herbstreet in football, they have a presence on the draft. Mm. Now, I, I think they've seen a lot of college players, no question. But neither guy has been 300 miles near a draft room. They wouldn't have any idea what goes on in the draft or how to calculate a draft or put together a draft. And yet they are the focal point of the coverage. I think there's a place, but there should be somebody that has actually done the job talking about it. I mean, that's how they build their whole broadcasting network. They say, we want ex-players who played the game, so we're going to put them in the analyst booth so they can tell us about the game they played. And yet the coverage of the t- of the draft is, we don't want anybody who's ever been in the draft room.
1: And, and the thing that you always point out, especially with college football and the NFL, you say, the Saturday game is different than the Sunday game. Yet we're talking about somebody who, his expertise is in the Saturday game. And I get it. Like, right. we, like he has the knowledge and all that stuff. But it's like, okay, his co- contextual knowledge is based on college football. I don't really know if it really translates to what's going to happen at the next level, but we we got to hear from them. So th- yeah, that's I mean, look, I, and
2: I don't mean any disrespect to Herb oh, Street. I just it, he does a fantastic me, job. He's on watching the a prop, different yeah. game than I'm watching, and and he and, and part of being able to talk about a draft is how the player fits within the scheme, right? Yeah. You know, how does that all work? What is the scheme? What do you understand the scheme? What is going to happen? Same thing in the NBA. To me, the NBA is even more about that because, remember, the NBA, they draft their players before free agency. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know what move is going to happen. We have an indication. If you take this player, then you're going to sign this in free agent. Maybe you trade that player. So there's a lot of dominoes, and, and I'm looking for the dominoes. I'm trying to get somebody who wants to talk about those things that are really important. You know, and that's why Ed Smith today is important for us because we all make decisions, right? We all want to have information to make decisions, but what do we do with the information when we bring it into ourselves? We have to understand how to sort and process the information, and somebody needs to tell the fans how this is going on on NBA teams.
1: Well, how about the decision that Michael Jordan had to make there at pick number two for the Charlotte Hornets going with Brandon Miller out of Alabama over Scoot Henderson, who was playing at the G League Ignite team there. Uh, th- that was one that was bandied about all throughout the process because we all knew that Wembenyama was going to go number one to San Antonio, but it was like, all right, well, what's, what's going to happen at two? Is it Miller? Is it Scoot Henderson? It ends up being Miller there, and the the Hornets kind of opt for size over the kind of shorter, miniature athletic guard.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, and certainly, you know, I, I didn't know both players. I watched Miller in college and mm-hmm. Scoot on YouTube, but – To me, you know, you got to trust Cupcheck and the people involved. I don't think this is just one man's decision. You know, when I listened to Pat Riley's uh, end-of-the-year press conference, which which was fabulous, you know, and he talked about everybody has a voice, not everybody has a vote, is to Mm -hmm. take that information in and then process it through. Uh, So, you know, look, Brandon Miller, we'll see how it works out. I mean, he went from being, you know, the funny thing is I think COVID kind of really messed up all these guys ratings Yep, because you know like guys were top players in high school but nobody really ever saw them so you know and i've said this many times on the podcast if the starting point's wrong everything's wrong if you start a draft board with the wrong guy aligned to build the board around the whole board's going to be wrong the whole board's Mm going to be wrong and i think that's kind of affected a little bit of the of the bias that goes into some of this, you know, Miller was ranked below Nick Smith as a high school senior. Is that true? I don't know. You know, maybe he was great in high school, but that COVID year, nobody really ever saw him. And and so I, I think what happens is you, you've got to try to sort through all that data.
1: Yeah. It made it things tricky for the scouting. Cause like you couldn't just go on the road and meet these kids face to face and all that with COVID going on. We're just trying to be able to play the games, you know, for figuring out all the, uh, the outskirts stuff there. But yeah, Miller ends up going to six foot nine kid. You know he can shoot the ball. Like I think he's like about thirty eight percent, thirty nine percent from three point range at Alabama. Now he did have the off the court issue there with Alabama and like the whole the the, the murder that happened there. Obviously, like that's a very serious situation. Like he did not murder anybody, but there was allegedly that he supplied the gun, which was then used in the murder. Like like that to me, it's like it's a little bit shaky in terms of the off the court stuff. You wonder about the decision making there, but. Maybe that's a decision to hate. Hey, like, he learns from that. But I mean, I think, I'll be honest, Michael, if I was Charlotte, I think I'd have drafted Scoot Henderson. I, and, and granted, I've only seen a little bit of Scoot. I've only seen a little bit of YouTube highlights and all that stuff. But that kid's got, he's got that dog mentality in him. Just so you can see it jump yeah. off the page when he plays. And I get that he's smaller, but he, he's six foot two. He's not five foot two. Like, there's been six foot two guys who have been productive in the NBA.
2: Yeah, I, I get that too, you know, and, and certainly when you listen to people talk about Scoot and he's got a culture builder mentality, Yeah, he's one of these hard-working kids, you want him to be the focal point, and you know Charlotte needs an adult in the room. I mean, Charlotte's 100%. issue is that they have too many guys that are, are not about basketball. They're more about the, the lifestyle that they get to lead because they're all millionaires.
1: Yeah, and, and, and you want somebody who's going to be that, that thermostat leader that comes in there and can just – like rejuvenate an organization that's been sort of down in the dumps a little bit here for for quite some time. But uh, everyone's super excited about Wembenyama. Summer League's gonna be out here in Vegas in in a couple of weeks. Here, Wembenyama's gonna. Go? gonna... I- I'm gonna try to see if I can get out there. Uh, I know that. The oh, w- you
2: gotta go see the yeah. guy. You gotta go watch him. You know he's only gonna probably play in two games, but you gotta yeah. go watch him. That's the thing. Veasan's I mean, so gonna have a desk there. Yeah. Hell yeah. If I was out there, I'd be there. Hell, I I tape all the games. I mean, I'm an idiot. I tape the 76er <laughs> games too on that. I'm an idiot. <laughs> yeah, they're
1: scouting. <laughs> Send your notes yeah, to Nick Nurse. I, I love there it. You go. I mean,
2: I love watching it.
1: <laughs> well, we'll talk about some of the free agent stuff and some summer league on the other side. This is the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi. 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources.
2: You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi. Presented by DraftKings and Sin. Here is Femi Abebefei.
1: So, Michael, I come back from uh, from vacation. So, I'm actually be getting out of town here a little bit next week. But the Scoot Henderson, Victor Wembanyama, I'm I'm going to Minnesota. Uh, That's where my fiance is from. So, go see her family. You know, since we don't get to see them often, you know, it's about a two two and a half hour flight away. So, uh, we'll go get hang out in Minnesota for a little while, spend the week out there, and come on back to Vegas and get ready for the stretch run. You know, so it's looking forward to the vacation. But uh, uh, when we come back. The the day after we come back will be the Blazers Spurs summer league game, so that'll be the Scoot Henderson Victor Wembanyama showcase on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening I believe it is. So maybe I'll get out to that one because I think we're doing Lombardi you line should. that morning. So I'll be off after the morning show and then you know we'll we'll go out and get a little live scouting report of of Wemby.
2: I I can't imagine. I mean I would love to see it because you know some of the things I think what 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 happens is we get these, we get visuals based on what the NBA draft people talk to us about. This guy Mm -hmm. could do this, he could do that, he can't do this, he can't do that, right? Well, you know, when I first started in scouting, it was 84. So it was only, you only had 16 millimeter tape, which meant that it was, and that was oil-based and the league wasn't as rich as it is today, okay? So, Mm -hmm. Everything was every expense was noted back then, including the teams that spent money, and so it, you had to literally go to the campus to watch the players play, mm-hmm. and and this is basketball and football. I'm sure baseball too, and so what you had to do when you wrote a report was you had to describe the player in the report in a visual manner so that the pl- the person reading the report could could really have a sense could visualize this player mm-hmm. you know could really see this player without seeing the player and what I find as my career has gone on and now everybody watches the tape when I listen to somebody give a scouting report I want to be able to see what they're seeing what they say and the summer League is kind of a like a validation of that like like Markel's faults like when I first when I listened to all the the scouting reports on him, and then I saw him at the at the Summer League, it didn't, like, what I visualized and what I saw were two different things. Mm. And I think, to me, that's what makes Summer League so fun because we've heard all these superlatives about these great players and everybody's great, right? No yeah. one is going to go bad. You know, everybody's tremendous. And everybody's going to be a star. And then when you watch them – you know, what's the role, What does the, does the visualization match the reality? And I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to do. That's why if you're going to be a good scout, you really have to practice writing. You have to be able to express yourself without using the same terms over and over again yeah. to describe what you're seeing so that you capture the
1: person reading the report. Yeah, I'd say practice writing and then also reading a lot. You know, that's how you build your vocabulary, by reading other people's work and all that stuff. And and I think that's what we see. And, and granted, like the, the broadcasts and stuff, when you see draft coverage, I get they have to speak in 30 second sound bites because they got to keep things moving. But oftentimes, I feel like you hear the same terms over and over. This is a 3D and yeah. guy. This is a this guy. Or this is so and so. Like it's because it has to be in that bite sized, easily consumable kind of analysis. But oftentimes, that does us as consumers a disservice because it's like, okay, well, damn, did, did everybody get a three and D guy? Like, like, like what's going on in the yeah. draft here? You know, it's, it's kind of hard to kind of differentiate between what, what, prospects. what they,
2: what they call that is a belief perseverance
1: that that's mm. when
2: everybody really essentially has a belief and they just keep, and they won't change it. Right. Nobody really changes. it. it, it it's really one of the downfalls of the draft in the NFL. There is a belief perseverance within that framework and what, why that is? Because people won't change what they do. So I talked about 84. You had to write a report to visualize because we couldn't see the tape. Mm-hmm. Okay, 2023, everybody can watch. You can watch every one of shitty Texas A&M's offense under the great Jimbo Fisher calling plays. You can watch him sitting at your desk, right? You can yeah. watch every game. And everybody can watch every game. Mm-hmm. But yet the way people scout hasn't changed over that time the way the scouting in 84 to 2023 looks exactly very similar there's area scouts you know guys write reports they go to the school they watch practice they go to the next school they you know which to me is partly why the system is broken because of belief because of the belief perseverance because people will not change their belief in how they should do things and if somebody does it a different way you're looked at as an outcast and that's really a hard thing. I mean, that that occurred back in the mid mid century. This this started in the 1800s when this guy um, Ignaz uh, he Ignaz Semmelweis, I think his last name was. He was a Hungarian professor, and there was a lot of childbirths that were resulting in mothers dying because they were developing what they called childhood fever. And so what he determined was through his own experiences was, look, I think what's happening is here I'm giving birth to mother A and then I go see mother B and give birth and I'm taking the germs from this mother to the next mother, right? So I think if I wash my hands, it might help. Okay, so he starts doing that and the doctors at the Vienna General Hospital start doing that as well. And yet what happens is every other doctor that sees this thinks he's ridiculous. They start making fun of him. They start Mm -hmm. making fun of who he is and what he's doing. And so he becomes the laughing stock because he's going against the belief perseverance. He ends up getting committed. To a hospital in a sane asylum he dies 14 years later and of course now we know that louis pasteur and, and and others are the ones that ended up getting credit for the the hygiene of doctors and so wow. that's kind of that story is very similar to people that try to buck the system and that's why the draft is so
1: bad because it's been done the same way and, and you know that's such a fascinating story because he came to that with a hypothesis of hey Maybe I'm the one that's carrying the germs. He was self-reflective and saying, because I gave birth to Mother A, Mother B. What's the common denominator in that? It's me. (laughs) So what if I reevaluate how I'm doing stuff? Right. But they couldn't prove – he couldn't – in theory, he couldn't prove
2: Mm -hmm. it to the other doctors. So it was dismissed as just he's a nut job. Wow. You know, we never do this. We don't need to wash our hands. (laughs) You know, and germ hygiene became something that Pasteur – and, and and others, you know, developed. I mean, Louis Pasteur gets credit for it, mm-hmm. and uh, I I think that oh, Joseph Lister's the other guy who gets credit for it as well. So those two guys developed it. But this 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 Hungarian doctor who was giving birth and was in the experience of it. That's one of the things we're going to talk about with Ed Smith too. Is is how experience really helps you offset this some of the decisions you know you get into a situation where you have some experience and it's practical that you have to use it in decision making and i think that's a perfect example of what happens
1: yeah i think that's a really good lesson um just to kind of keep in mind going forward there uh now that the nba draft is over we're going to turn our attention to the nba free agency i I saw the, the daytime talk shows earlier today they were talking about your guy Joel Embiid could he ask for a trade if the Sixers can't get over the hump was the question and how that was being phrased. Uh, what, yeah. do, what do you want your boy Daryl Morey to do here with free HZ? It feels like they're kind of handcuffed a, a little bit. Yeah,
2: I mean when we get our when we get our informant on, uh, we'll talk a lot about this because uh, he knows a lot about this subject, uh, deep undercover. But I mean he's a checkmate. I mean, he, he asked for a ridiculous trade from the Cleveland Cavaliers for Tobias Harris. It's his only asset that he has, mm-hmm. unless he's willing to, p- to part with Tyrese Maxey. But yeah. I think he's in checkmate. He's going to sign Harden back, but he has no other – he's going to bring the same team back, you know, because he's he's in checkmate. Yeah. And that's what happens to you when you have a bias towards one player. You know, when you have a bias towards one, I have to have Harden, I'm not looking at anybody else, You're gonna you're going to be in checkmate. And so I could see Embiid by Christmas if things – if the if they come back and it's not working, I could see that. I mean, that's the only other asset they have.
1: Yeah. Man, his love affair for Harden, man, that thing runs deep, man. Like, it's – I don't understand. It's a, I mean,
2: for for a man that 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 is so analytical and started the Sloan Conference, which is based on bias, He he's not self-reflective of – He got caught into a bias of the player. And and as the player got older, he never adjusted his evaluation of the player. As much as we love players, you have to adjust the evaluation of the player. Then is then, now is now. And, you know, you can love Joe Montana, and certainly Bill Walsh did, but Bill Walsh adjusted his evaluation of him later because of injuries. Didn't mean he didn't love him less.
1: And and Harden... Harden and Maury never won anything together. That's why I don't understand why there's well, this Maury's diehard never allegiance. Maury's
2: never, well, but that doesn't matter. I mean, Ma- Maury can, Maury's a lot like the, you know, the Ravens. I mean, he's got a really good political back. You know, He can carry the Southern primaries. I mean, you know, and so he's able to to convince people through his analytical jargon that this is – but yet the proof isn't there, but no one looks at the proof, right? Yeah. I mean, here's our guy, Ig- Ignaz Summerlewis. Summer and he's got proof, and he's being laughed at. Meanwhile, Maury has no proof, and he's being held.
1: Yeah, there's no banners, there's no rings, there's no skins on the Nothing wall. Nothing but... ever
2: in any place ever. <laughs> Nothing. Like, but <laughs> like it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. He, he and he's not changing what he does.
1: That's insane. Uh, what do you think happens with Damian Lillard? Because free agency is coming up on Friday. Lillard, has uh, he's yet to ask for a trade or anything like that. But, I mean, this is kind of coming to a head. Well, that's what we
2: don't know if he has or not. I mean, I think they have to make a move on him. I mean, they've got a decision. Either they go young or they go all in. Mm -hmm. And, And they've got to ask themselves, what's the highest value that they can get? I mean, look, to me, like anything, I think you have to take the approach of let's explore and let's see what's out there and let's make a decision based on what's out there. Let's not say we're trading them without knowing what, what's out there. Like, let's explore. Like, it may lead you down another road.
1: Yeah, and or maybe through exploration, you find out that somebody is really, really interested in Scoot Henderson and wants to give you some big-time veteran player that could pair alongside Damian Lillard, and you guys can go ahead and, and try to make a run for a title because we know Lillard, he doesn't want to play with like the youth movement. Like He said, I want to be on a title-contending team is what he said, and now he's giving Portland a week to figure that out. What they're going to figure out in that week, it remains to be seen, but it feels like they kind of have to make us a, a little bit of a decision between either we're going to go the Scoot Henderson route and build around him, or we're going to build – A veteran-based team around Damian Lillard. Yeah. Well, I mean, are they going to try
2: to get? Are they going to try to trade? I mean, where's your boy Zion Williamson? He could be available. Well, that's
1: a whole other subject. Yeah. I'm
2: so excited to talk to my man Ed Smith. Anyway, let's get to him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Let's get to Ed Smith. We don't need to talk about Zion. That's come on. (laughs) Uh, Ed Smith, as we continue our literature and leadership series, the co-founder and director of the Institute of Sports Humanities was the chief selector for the England men's cricket team that won the World Cup in 2019. He's going to join us next here on the GM Shuffle. Don't go away. We can't wait for this conversation.
2: You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi presented by DraftKings and V-CIN. is Femi Abebefei.
1: All right, we're continuing our literature and leadership series here on the GM Shuffle podcast, and we are absolutely thrilled to have our next guest joining us here. He is the co-founder and director of the Institute of Sports and Humanities, also the author of Making Decisions, Putting the Human Back in the Machine. It's the one and only Ed Smith joining us here on the GM Shuffle. Ed, we appreciate you taking the time overseas across the pond in England, but how are we doing today?
0: A great pleasure to be with you, and thanks so much for inviting me. Hugely looking forward to the conversation. Well, you know, I,
2: I got a uh, tipped on your book by Steven Prather, who is, uh, uh, helps coaches and does a tremendous job, and said, you got to read this book." So I did, and I got it, and I like uh, read it in two days and fell absolutely in love with it. And to me, I would love you to share for our audience kind of how you started kind of from an analytical start to then broadening it to the human element and combining the two when you wrote the book.
0: Well, first of all, I should say, we must avoid a mutual appreciation society. But I'm going to fail up front by saying I also love Gridiron Genius. And I I doubt I have anything to say, Michael, that you haven't thought of already. But I'm going to say it anyway. I should start by saying that, you know, the job I used to have in England cricket, so our sort of highest, you know, biggest team is the England national team, is an unusual, cricket has an unusual division of responsibilities. So they have a captain who's very important. A coach, who obviously we know about in sport, but they also have a head of selection who's almost like I the way I think about it is, is being kind of a football manager but cut in half. So he's not allowed on the, you know, on the game day, he kind of disappears. But he does have a big say over who's on the field by definition as being the sort of selector. So it's kind of part GM, part strategist through recruitment and selection. That's the role. Now I started as that in that role as Chief Selective for England Cricket, um, in 2018, and I was very interested in sports analytics. I'd spent some time in baseball when I was a professional player in cricket 20 years ago, and there was a cusp of an analytical revolution. So there's a, there's the rationalist inside you that says, I want to try and solve. I want to optimize. I want to end up picking the team that couldn't possibly be better because we've got all the data and we've got the science. And There's that side of your character. Over time, of course, particularly with the advances in AI and in machine learning, you realize that contrary to what you want to believe, your value as a human being is in those things which can't be quantified. It's in insight, intuition, analogy, metaphor. Sometimes you can't even explain how you got there. Someone uh, very perceptively defined intuition as thinking which doesn't leave any working like you're not quite sure what happened. But actually, if you eliminate those modes of thought, you're actually making yourself redundant because we know that when there's plentiful data and the question can be extremely precisely defined, we know that you know an algorithm's going to do that pretty well. But very often, that's not the circumstance of a sports team. And it's a question, I think, of how you blend those different types of intelligence. Yes, you want to have the smart sports data guys, and you want to be asking them the right question and you want to be open to their answers. But also you've got to understand that a team is a group of human beings, part of a shared mission. And there are two parts to that. First, how do they fit together? You know, it's about picking uh the fastest boat, you know, in a rowing analogy, rather than just the best eight sort of rowers individually. And secondly, it's also about that journey of that group. And there's a great line in your book from Bill Belichick, Michael which is that we're not collecting talent, we're building a team. Now that says basically in one sentence what you know I sort of learned over a period of years and tried to uh, explore in, in making decisions.
1: I think that's a really interesting way of putting it there. It's almost as if you're, there's a science side of things, but then it's also an art form that you, you got to be able to have the art form of having the kind of the intuition as well to help build a team and and, and create a, a, an optimal organization.
0: I think... Exactly that. And that was actually, you know, you you referenced the institution that I set up um, four years ago, and now I, I'm director of the Institute of Sports Humanities. And a lot of people assumed we were going to sit inside sports science. Now, obviously, the work we do in, in supporting and nurturing leaders in the sports industry touches on the science, you know, you're going to have to understand data analytics, you have to understand, you know, uh, s cs and you have to understand physiology and all that sort of scientific element of sport but you're also gonna to have to bring what I would call a humanities lens. How does it all fit together? How do we know what we know? How do we weigh and reconcile different forms of information? So if I just take you into one particular decision that's sitting on my desk as a selector, you know, should we go with player X or player Y for Saturday? Well, that's gonna be partly a scouting conversation, partly a data conversation, partly a coaching conversation, partly a physical conditioning conversation. All these things are in the mix. And your value, I think, as the person who's going to make that call, is how do you weigh those different threads and hopefully come up with a decision that's by far me definitely not perfect, but hopefully better than average. And if you're better than average often enough, hopefully you can create value.
2: And sometimes, even though we think we made the right decision, it turns out wrong because we are in a game or we're cricket football soccer that the balls are different and there's a bounce that goes the wrong way that it looks like you made the wrong decision when perhaps and you wrote your first book called luck that luck wasn't on your side how do you address that
0: i think that's right and i became interested in luck not from the perspective of, of making an excuse but quite the opposite if you from a strategic point of view i think you need to Uh, understand the role of chance and randomness in sport because what sport's very good at is forcing a mixture of skill and luck into a result doesn't mean to say the result was actually perfectly representative of the truth or or how it ought to have been that cuts both ways there are times when you make the wrong decision and you win and you want to make sure you learn from that and don't do it next time and there are times when you actually make the right decision and lose. Don't get knocked off in that circumstance. Don't fold too early. And there's a great line in the Annie Duke's book about poker when she says decisions are loosely correlated with outcomes. And I think that's Mm. true. And particularly over the longer term. You know, eventually a good decision maker is gonna do better than a bad decision maker, but not necessarily on any given day. And that's one of the reasons why we all turn up to the sports matches, because there's that interplay of of skill and uncertainty. You know, you reference how, oh, I'm sorry,
1: Mike. I I wanted to ask this question real quick because you talked about how you have so many different factions when you're trying to select which should be player X or player Y. We got to hear from all these different things that we have to factor in. Like, how do you kind of, as a decision maker and as the leader, how do you sort of fight against the urge to try to please as many people as possible? Because I think human nature is we all want to be liked. We all want to be popular. Like, how do you fight yeah. against that urge of like, oh, well, I don't want to upset these people over here. So do I make that decision? Like, how do you kind of balance that
0: out? Well, that's a good question. I I don't think pleasing everyone was ever a particular strength of mine. So maybe, <laughs> maybe um, maybe, you know, um, maybe I was unusual and perhaps not being as concerned as Maybe I should be, or or maybe most people are about that. I think that a good meeting, first of all, yields a decision. I I don't want to go to any meeting that doesn't end in a decision. And secondly, I would like there to be personal trust. And Howard Marks, the investor, had this great line that a good meeting meeting has personal trust, but intellectual skepticism. So you want to have people arguing about ideas, but trusting each other as people. Mm. And when it's the other way around, and they don't want to talk about the ideas, but everyone wants to be mates. you've got a problem. And Also, the other thing is I think you want to bring the conflict forward so that a bad meeting or a bad decision-making gathering, we're going to call it, is when nothing gets talked about when it's live and then they slip into the corridor and everyone gets into the real meat of it. Well, let's have that when the decision is yet to be made, so we get all the arguments on the table. And Maybe the first thing you've got to ask yourself is, what are the options? Because sometimes some of the options are not considered because it's too difficult. And once you've fleshed out all the options, a lot of which may involve taking on very famous people who, you know, may positions in the team may be at stake or all sorts of high-risk activities, then I think you're in a better position to look at the right one. But what people tend to do is they rush towards, I like this option, before they've actually looked at all the ones they've got. So you probably first need to look at all the ways you could play your hand before you arrive at the optimal one.
2: We were talking earlier, Ed, in the podcast about something that uh, occurs in NFL football, which is what I, which is called belief perseverance, which is the old, we've done it this way, regardless of what the evidence is, we're going to keep doing it this way. Did you fight that initially when you were kind of going through the analytical phrase from the experienced people that were against analytics?
0: Yes, I did. And I probably I I think there are two things there. I think there's always a shock of the new. So anyone that's innovation is very insulting because not not deliberately but accidentally, because people are already thinking, well, I didn't think of it, so I don't like it. That's the first point. And you've got to be prepared for a lot of heat. It's also true that things that are now considered to be very standard in sport were once innovative and someone had to Try it and then prove it, and then everyone wants in, and then there's a sort of herding towards that as a standard practice. I think the um, the second thing is that you need to, if you're interested in innovation, I think you also need to be interested in tradition. And obviously, there's a much broader argument there, which has been explored through uh, a critical artistic lens as well. That you know, if you're trying new stuff, it also helps if you understand the rules of how people used to do it. So I'm actually very interested in cricketing tradition and in traditions in other sports too. And I want to know that if I'm diverging from what's usually done, I'm on pretty solid ground, that I know what I'm doing and I I have a clear uh, sense or framework for why this is time to break with tradition. I don't think you want to just be bullishly saying that everything that's gone before is a waste of time. And again, Michael, in your book, you you had the line about Belichick that he's both a traditionalist and an iconoclast. And I think actually that really resonated with the people I admire, that they're skeptical and always challenging, but they don't just write off the way things have been done before. And they take from both traditions. They take from the restlessness in their own character, and they take from their understanding and their humility of people who have gone before. And it's very difficult to know, you know in any particular decision when to take on that sort of weight of accumulated wisdom but there are definitely moments when you
1: should. You know, in doing preparation for this uh, interview here, I was listening to one of your interviews that you did with the Royal Society of the Arts, the RSA, and something that you said in that interview you said, when you fail on your terms, you don't think you failed. Can you expand on that? Because I think that's a
0: really interesting concept. Well, look, I, I think all of us in the sports world, you know, failure is part of the gig. And therefore, you know, unless you're, someone who's going to have an undefeated boxing career or something like that, which is, you know, probably one in a a thousand or 10,000 athletes get to have that. So you're going to fail plenty. When you look back on it, you you realize that failures that resulted from decisions or were connected to decisions that you believed in, they don't hurt you. You may wish it had turned out differently, but you were being yourself. And like, like always in life, if you're being yourself, you get what you get, but at least you're, you're, you're steering your own ship. I think when people look back on their their careers with a bit more um, dissatisfaction, it's when they got knocked off what they believed in, and they compromised too early or too readily, and they feel they didn't really live their career fully. I think we've all felt that at certain times as players. You know, I remember before I played for England, a friend of mine said to me, make sure you play your way because then you'll know. And that was a very perceptive comment. And, you know, maybe I could have done that harder. But certainly as a decision maker, when I was on the other side of the line off the field, I tried to do that. So if you've got the people you believe in on the field, and it may be that particular day the results don't work out, but you can say, I tried everything I could within my power to influence the result positively. And I think that's the way to be at peace with your career because you have to accept the fact that disappointment and frustration is built into sport. Uh, no one gets the dream run. No one. you know.
2: And do you feel like by studying other people's mistakes, it'll enhance your ability to curtail your mistakes? I think oftentimes yes. we look at right. other people, especially who we're competing against, and we laugh at their mistakes instead of learning from them.
0: Uh, that's a very, very perceptive point. I, I think We're getting into something quite fundamental there, which is to what extent can you kind of learn leadership um, through study? And that's obviously something very close to me because I'm an educator now and we try to help leaders and prepare them for very difficult roles at the Institute. I think the truth is that if you can put yourself in the shoes of other decision makers, you can fast track your own development. You're probably always going to learn more and quicker when it's your mistake because the fall is going to hurt more and you're going to remember it better. But I think whenever I watch sport, and I learned a huge amount from American sport. One of the reasons I was very happy to come on today, I lived in New York for five winters. So in the off seasons when I was a professional cricketer, I actually lived in lower Manhattan and immersed myself in American sport, wrote about baseball, joined up with the New York Mets, loved American sport. And all the time you're soaking up. Um, analysis you're soaking up decision making by by gms by managers you're thinking what can i take from this uh i think if you watch sport through that lens then some of that will go in and you can maybe hopefully avoid or at least learn faster when it's your time to make the mistakes and i suspect that's the way that great coaches do watch sport they're almost they're always learning. And I think when, we, when we've when we encountered those great coaches, the striking thing about them is that they're never done. They're always watching someone else and always thinking, can I take something from this, whether it's success or failure, whether it's disappointment or triumph. And I guess that started with me quite young. My, my dad's a novelist who loved sport. And he always watched sport through the lens of human psychology what's going on here? That was the way he was trained to think about characters in his books and also as an English teacher. And I think some of that stayed with me, that you're always asking what's going on here and how is personality, strategy, outcome interacting? Uh, And when it's my turn, which of course we always think it will be one day when we're watching sport, you know, how can I be in a better place to make better decisions?
1: Yeah. I think that's just general curiosity as well. Just trying to figure out like, Hey, like what's like, you're trying to answer the question without being on the inside, you're on the outside externally, looking at how things are kind of breaking down a little bit.
0: I think so. I also think that, um, often we learn best at one step removed from our own experience. Mm. You know, Michael and I have been chatting leading into this conversation and I don't know that much about American football, but I can, but when I listen to it, there's a, a a fascination to me because I see how it translates into my world. And Michael's not a big cricket fan, and probably a lot of your listeners aren't. But hopefully, they will see uh, see that to some extent the challenges are universal. It's it's often just a, a a unique framing. A sport, an individual sport, creates a set of circumstances or conditions or problems. But the underlying situation is universal. And that's one of the reasons why I think we can spend too much time in our own silo or ghetto and just only speak to people in our own sport or our own little narrow walk of life. But the people I learned most from were often one step removed. Uh, people who were taking risks, making decisions, involved with strategy, but not necessarily in cricket. I figured that I was pretty immersed in that already. Um and so it's funny in the at the institute now if you put a cricket leader next to a football leader uh, a soccer leader next to a rugby union leader they open right up but if you put them next to people from their own sport there's that natural guardedness about protecting a you know competitive advantage so that's part of the the way in which i think we all learn whether it's formally or informally is to put ourselves in the way of interesting people who have analogous experiences but one step removed i think i also think no, I, I, put, I mean go ahead Ed. i was gonna say i also think that and this is probably the biggest difference between me and and you like know, i think most people in sport I, I tend to think of sport as being more of a creative enterprise that has a lot to do with the arts as a you're trying to create something through a team and not something that you're just assembling a portfolio of assets which is you know like in which inert things can be traded back and forward and so i also think you can learn a lot from people who run a theater company or make movies or conduct an orchestra who are involved with trying to get people to come together in performance and there's a great line um that uh an orchestra conductor said that You've got to make make an orchestra say no many times. So they say yes once together on the night of the performance, which made me think differently about practice. You know, coaches sometimes I think they want practice to be exactly like a game because it feels like professional to them. But there's got to be some scope for a game being different and special. Doesn't mean you're not practicing hard, but you recognize that the whole ambience of game day is different and you want to leave some room for your own inspiration in in yourself as a coach and also in your players. So I think that taking from other creative enterprises is a valuable, um, approach. I, I love that. And I
2: think, you know, and I've been on a Rick Rubin kick lately because of that. And I think to me, the more you read about, uh, writers and artists and how they start to the create a process and I think it helps coaches so where I'd like to go is we have this we have this void to me in our business is that there's we've put too much emphasis on the strategist and not enough emphasis on the leader and I know you wrote at length about that in your book
0: it's a leadership is a, is such a complicated question isn't it because everyone's in favor of it in principle but very few people (laughs) act in support of it um so i think that let me answer that question in maybe a slightly different way increasingly i see a tension between managerialism and true leadership so (laughs) the extent to which everyone's engaged with compliance and checking up and lines of accountability and organizational charts, all these things have nothing to do with leadership. In my view, if you're working out who's going to get the blame when it all goes wrong and writing it down and sticking it in a drawer, you're not really engaged with the important stuff. So I think that a lot of activities of highly professional sports teams work against leadership because I think leadership is actually based on a relatively small amount of people understanding authority and control and you know there's a a great line in uh, warren zane's book about bruce springsteen the making of nebraska where springsteen says i never had any interest in professionals they like schedules what i was interested in was forging an identity and he just says he wants people who've got skills who are all in now that to me is a leader speaking people i need people around me that have got skills who can do stuff i can't do but I'm not really worried about whether they're charging by the hour. I'm not interested in those guys. I want people who just want to create greatness. Now, I think leadership is, is really about the ability of someone to galvanize a group towards the pursuit of greatness, often taking people beyond the point at which they think they can, uh, they can go. And nearly all of us have got more capacity than we are comfortable with acknowledging and a great leader can get it out of us they can get it out of us a lot more effectively than um the forces of dull managerial professionalism which kind of like stop us being creative and interesting so that's the 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 leadership managerialism um spectrum i think you touch on on strategy i think you know uh, a great cricket captain called Andrew Strauss, who took England to number one in the world, used to say to me, it's not only about making the right decision, it's about making the decision right. And he said, you're never going to get everything right. But if you can get people to believe in you, then that's a big part of it. And he was actually very, very good at that as captain um, and getting, getting people aligned. And I think that In the same way, a a former England captain called Mike Brearley made a programme with a theatre director. And the director said to him, you know, it's the most unfair business in the world. I've seen terrible directors give very good advice and get awful results. And I've seen brilliant directors give awful advice and get superb results. And sometimes it's the way a leader makes you feel and the ability to transfer confidence which can make all the difference in a group. Now, some people might call that charisma, and it's a bit deeper than that, I think, Uh, a connection that leads to added value.
1: I I think that perfectly kind of connects with a recent interview we did with Owen Eastwood and his book, Belonging, about how you kind of have to get people to believe in you, and and I think maintaining relationships – while being that leader who can make the critical decisions I think is really important because without being able to have the relationships, it's hard for anybody to ever believe in you. Like you mentioned, you could have the greatest idea ever, but if there's no belief, then it's hard to execute it. While if you have the worst idea ever, if people believe in you, they're going to go 110% to make that happen.
0: And I think Owen's book, Belonging, is very good on that. Uh, You know, I would also say that there are some jobs where (laughs) – and maybe a selector is one of those difficult jobs where a degree of coolness and unpopularity maybe is hard to avoid, because ultimately you're the person who's making some tough decisions that may end someone's career, and there may not be a way back. So I don't uh, I don't disagree at all but probably I would say the emphasis for that comes more towards the coach and the captain. And I think the selector may have to keep a bit of distance or the GM or or whatever structure you're working in. Just to to take that idea a little bit further, usually when someone who's very good is left out of a team, which tends to happen particularly in good teams, obviously, the standard reaction is they're too good to be left out, this can't be happening. But very seldom is the reverse point made, which is that there may be someone out of the team who's too good to stay out of it. And if you like, your job is to is to dispense opportunity fairly to the good of the whole group. And your loyalty really is only to the team. And that's where I think a degree of ruthlessness or unsentiment, unsentimentality is pretty central to it all as well. And Obviously, the very best elite coaches combine empathy with being very unblinking and unsentimental. But certainly someone in the mix needs to be making decisions which are all geared towards the organization and the team and not being swayed by personal loyalty or even just desire to see a good person do well. Because there's also the other person that warrants that opportunity as well.
2: You know, when... To me, you've had the job of building the cricket team in England, and building any team requires the understanding of how it all messes, as you've indicated. Springsteen, when he was looking for a drummer, I find this fascinating that he was so perceptive that he put the ad in the classifieds, drummer wanted, but no Ginger Bakers, who was essentially supposed to be one of the greatest drummers of all time. So when you were picking the cricket, did, did that thought of how to blend everyone together, like for me, it's, it is it, it is so important to understand how everything works together as opposed to we're going to get the NBA free. out. All we need is a power forward and we're going to be fine. Well, does that blend together? And so the Ginger Baker line to me is is really like this guy gets how to build a team. Did, did you see that in your experiences with the cricket team?
0: Well, huh that you know you just summarized my life really for, for 3 years and what I was trying to do i think first of all you're taking on a big argument there because if you if that's your philosophy which is i want to create a team which has the greatest chance of winning the most number of matches there are going to be times when you pick someone who according to the statistics or the data that are in sort of common um, discourse is less good than someone you're leaving out. And everyone's gonna shout and say, I can't believe they're doing this, these guys are crazy. In my case, they're probably gonna say he's data obsessed or he's too clever by half or whatever they're gonna say. (laughs) But the reason you're doing it is that you're not picking individuals, you're picking a team. Even in a sport which is a sequence of isolated events like baseball or cricket, you're still picking a team. And in my book, there are two chapters. One is called Swarm Harmonizer and one is called Lego. And they're both really explorations at that point. The swarm harmonizer is, devised, is, is derived from kind of biology and physics, which is a, a property which leads a group to kind of order itself in its collective movement. And there are clearly players who have that capability. Now, it may be that it's their skills that complement the group in some quite complicated way, or it may be that it's their personality, but it could be either. But for some reason, the group performs better when they're on the field. Now, obviously, you know, there is a data element to that because you're capturing collective output through the wins and losses of the team over time and tracking their you know, correlation with high achievement in the team. But it may be that that individual player who brings it all together doesn't leave as big a trace in terms of the scoreboard as someone else who you're leaving out. But you still know that they are a valued member of a winning group. And in the same way, in the in the chapter called Lego and Making Decisions, I explore the fact that there are many different types of player who have that quality. Not all of them are selfless and not all of them are easygoing or good like team guys, but they make a contribution in some way that adds up to more than um that helps the team to become more than the sum of its parts. And actually, one of the, the interesting things is in, in football history and soccer history, the person that understood this better than anyone is Johan Cruyff, through Total Football, which becomes, if you like, the, the tradition which is inherited by Pep Guardiola and sort of swept the world from first from Spain and then to Germany and now to, to Man City, which is you the know, best club in the world at the moment. But the interesting thing about Cruyff, who's a very difficult person, who's founding it all in the 1970s, is he's not like the all-for-one, one-for-all type person. He's actually a very individual, tricky person, but he has the imagination to see that if everyone can play together and interchange positions extremely rapidly, that expands the capability of the whole team by such a big degree that you have to do it, which is that's like the radical departure in the 1970s. And I think in the same way that in cricket which is you know where my experience is rooted i think it's a big argument you're taking on with ex players is you're basically saying the guy we're picking might not be the best but it adds up to the best team uh, and if you do that you could expect a a, a a noisy and hostile uh media reaction
1: <laughs> but, but i think that goes along with the line that you were saying a little bit earlier when we first started talking is that like you're trying to put together a team. And if you just put together the best individual talents, anybody could do that because anybody who has cricket knowledge could see, all right, players 1 through 23 that's or true. so are all the best. But when you're putting that team together, you got to find out, okay, maybe player 30 on this player-to-player ranking list, he might not be as good as, as player 17, but he fits in better than player 17 does what allows us to be a better team going forward. And
0: that's the whole game. And that's why you live, you know, between – Player nine and player thirty. That's your life because you know the the, the guys who are clearly the best are gonna be in. Mm. It's that it's that hinterland of margins. And it also comes back to the, the the fundamental point of the book, which is that if you only do what other people would do or what an average of if you like informed opinion would do, there's no point having the job. You've done away with the job. You know you, you you're just basically stealing a living because anyone can aggregate informed opinion mm. and actual fact you know we have ai to do that for us you could say you know what would be the sensible england 11 for the next match against australia and stick it into you know chat gbt and if, if that was the answer you came up with then there's definitely no point in getting paid that month it's when you diverge intelligently and creatively from conventional wisdom that's, you know, the value. And again, there's a there's a great line by Howard Marks, which is that just because you're a contrarian thinker doesn't mean it's a good idea to stand in front of a bus. There are gonna be times when <laughs> conventional wisdom is right, you know? That's a and great line. <laughs> you don't wanna be showy about it. And I you know, um, you don't wanna believe your own press, you don't wanna to become too in love with being different for the sake of it but you do want to have the bravery to go with being different when you really believe in it. And I think that's, that's also gets to a a very big challenge for, I think all of us, which is you've got to have the confidence to be different, but you don't want to get overconfident and start believing that you're never wrong. And I'm not sure there's a solution to that spectrum other than there are times when we would like to be a little bit more confident, and there are times probably when we need to be protected from overconfidence.
2: You know, Danny Meyer, the owner of Shake Shack and the Gramercy Tavern and all that, when you write him a note... If you complain about the food or some service or something in his restaurants, he, he doesn't apologize. He, he basically wants to find out how he can fix the problem, right? So he, he's sorry, but he's going to fix the problem. And, and conversely, if you tell him, you know, what a great meal, he's, his first thing is, how do I make it better? And so that mindset allows yourself to kind of continue down this path. If you're constantly asking yourself, "How do I improve? Where do I go? What What do I? Where do I get to?" And I think that's important. And going back to this team building, which you wrote about so well, is to me, I, I love. You know, people think I hate analytics, which I don't. I think it's a valuable resource. But what I think you proved in your book was that. The United States Navy spends a half a billion dollars trying to figure out the men and women that can qualify for BUDS training and can get through it. And there's 175 people that that come into the class and only 30 make it because through all their research and data, instinctively they can't measure who can handle the volume, who can do it day after day. And I think that's what you highlight so well in your book about Understanding, whether you call it instinct, intuition, that that's something that has to be a part of decision making.
0: And the the difficulty is, and this is where we're running slightly against the tide here. The difficulty is, is that when is that valid? Because everyone can say an analytical yeah. approach. You can say, well, here are the numbers. And this applies, by the way, in all sorts of highly professional and lucrative spheres where everyone's always worried about the paper trail that shows how they made the decision so no one can accuse them of anything but by the way that rules out like all great leadership which has an intuitive element so you can't always have the paper trail that explains everything you've ever done and the problem is that what we're talking about isn't really a methodology it's just the truth so in answer if i was to ask them the most hostile question i could have my own book. It'd be like, so when do you know when to be instinctive and when do you know when to follow the evidence? And you're like, that's a judgment. There's no answer to that question. But I, I know for sure that I've never seen anyone run a great sports team without any element of judgment or the human dimension or instinct or intuition. I've not seen that happen. I've seen uh, very smart data savvy teams use analytics, but not just completely completely. Uh, give up on the human dimension and i think you know emboldening one of the the things you you find with leadership experience is you benefit from people that say how they did it and that you feel that that encourages you to be yourself and maybe you hope to do that as a writer as well you can't tell anyone what to do and you don't want to but if they're inclined to be that way maybe they'll feel a bit bolder about being that way and in my case, there were lots of writers who who helped me to understand that there was no perfect system for winning. There never has been and there never will be. There may be analytical or systematic elements and strands, but not the whole thing. You're always going to have to grapple, reevaluate, use your judgment. And if it doesn't feel difficult, you're not doing it right. That was the other thing is that You know, in a leadership role in sport, you're always thinking about the problems. And there are plenty of times when you think to yourself, why is this so hard? Well, you know, there's a a great line by Barack Obama in an interview with Michael Lewis when he said, nothing easy ever reaches my desk. and Obviously, that's a whole other level of complexity, which we don't we're not claiming an analogy between sport and government. But obviously, if things were easy, they would just be resolved. It's when things aren't easy, that's when you have to live with the problem. And at the time, you can't believe that it can be taking up so much mental energy and struggle, but that is the only way you can bring value, I think, as a decision maker, uh, is to acknowledge the fact that there is no perfect answer and you're gonna have to live with it uh, and grapple with all your different intellectual tools
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what makes it challenging, but that's if there was a perfect answer, I feel like it would even be harder to win because everybody would just do it. If there was a perfect answer, everybody could do it, and how do you find that edge if we all can find the equation about how to make a winner? Uh, We're up against it a little bit here, Ed, but I want to ask you this because you mentioned that ruthless mentality that you kind of have to have as a chief selector, especially for the cricket team. I mean, the cricket team was wildly successful when you were the chief selector, won the first World Cup for England. You guys were regularly number one ranked in the world but you were there for only three years. Do you think that could be a job that is held for a long time or does due to the ruthlessness and how you kind of have to go about selecting the team, is it something that it can only be an interim basis to where you're only the chief selector
0: for three to four years and then you have to find somebody else to come in? That's such a good question. Um, It's very hard for me to answer. Maybe the way I did it had a short shelf life. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe Maybe somebody else could survive for a long period of time. I think the personal answer is this, that from my side, I never sought the role. They approached me. I was busy doing other work outside sport, and I just wanted to make the biggest impact I could. Uh, And however long it lasted, that's how long it lasted. So I saw a bit of a tension between survivorship, trying to hang in there, and trying to have the biggest impact you could. I think it is hard to to constantly evolve and you know stay in a ruthless role without losing people, although some people clearly have done it, you know, so alex Ferguson at mm. at Manchester United, although he had a transfer system, the difficulty with a national sport is no <laughs> transfer system. so you know if people are really annoyed with you, they just stay annoyed with you and they're still there. um so i I think probably the the truthful answer is. It doesn't have to be three or four years, but I think if you go all out, that brings risks. Um, and the way I interpreted it was, you had to be prepared to take on some people who were you know, famous and, and had their own way of looking at things that might be different from yours. And that was gonna bring, if you like, career risk, but I'd rather take that on um, rather than just try and hang in there uh, and do a job for a long period of time. Which brings me back to like one of the big threads, I think, which is that can you live with a splash of the amateur spirit, even while being very thorough and, if you like, quote professional? I think that's not a bad idea. Um, and if you can live without too much fear of consequence, because many times in professional sport, I've seen people make not great decisions based out of fear and timidity. Uh, and I think that is a more common problem than people being too bullish or or too reckless. Yeah. So I guess I made up my mind I was going to be a little on the bolder side.
2: I love that. I think that's so true. We see that in all people. What We call that guard your desk. They guard their desk with the decisions and yet it ends up costing them their desk. But Ed, tell people where they can find you, how they could reach you, because this has been incredible. We certainly appreciate your time. Uh, I know you're on Twitter and I know your book's available on all online bookstores, but share with everyone how they can get in touch with you.
0: Well, uh, Ed Smith-Writer on Twitter, or probably best of all is sportshumanities.org, which is the website of the Institute of Sports Humanities. Um, We're growing internationally. I'm really excited about connecting with America through this conversation. Uh, I've learned so much from American sport, and um, hopefully in time, we'll establish a base in the US. Um, I think that leadership in sport is the most interesting thing, and I'm very privileged to do it. No, that's awesome. This has been There's a lot I'm of hopefully,
2: fun. I'm hopefully you'll hire me when you come
0: over. I can't wait for that, Ed. Appreciate <laughs> too that. expensive, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been such a pleasure to be on the program. Thank you so much. No, this has
1: been awesome. Thank you Once so again, much, Ed. Ed Smith, co-founder and director of Institute of Sports Humanities. Get his book; it's out now. Making decisions, putting the human back in the machine. Awesome stuff. And we were. Obviously pleased to have Ed on the podcast here. But that does it for this edition of the GM Shuffle Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Andre paira filling in for our buddy Elliot Bowman on the ones and twos. Thank you to you, Michael. Thank you once again to Ed Smith. And we will talk to you Thank guys you, Ed. on Thursday.